by 1.15 in the morning, Josh Weil, who's a UC Davis alumni ER physician sitting next to me, came in for the night shift. His neighbor had called and was yelling, get out, get out, not realizing he was on duty. And he immediately, Josh, turned and called his wife. And all we could hear was screaming from Josh's 15-year-old daughter because they were driving through flames. And that screaming, I could hear from across the room. And I knew Josh's house was very close to my house. And I knew my husband wasn't answering. And I dropped everything. I, I still am mentally made sure in my head that my patients were okay and transferring care to those that I needed to transfer, but ran to my car and left the hospital knowing I had to go up and get my husband and children out of the house. So Cheryl, could you introduce yourself and tell us about where you grew up, went to college, medical school, and where you did your residency, and where your career has taken you since then, and what and where your position is now? Okay, yes, I'm, I'm Cheryl McBride. I grew up both in California as well as actually the majority of my time in Colorado and was a third generation person to go in my family to the University of Colorado at Boulder, go Buffs. <laughs> um, and during my time at Boulder, got into the kinesiology department, I eventually found my way into an EMT course, which I think really helped shape my uh, career path moving forward, just knew I really enjoyed EMS work. And while I was trying to find myself as a person and what my future career was, and to be honest, getting through stress of a uh, 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 sexual assault, to be honest, at an early age. So that was a hmm. crisis I got through at an early time. Had to kind of find confidence and build my career. I was working at a hospital that's a Kaiser-affiliated hospital in Colorado and did one class at a time doing sort of undergraduate pre-med work and knew someday I would help pay Kaiser back for the generosity they gave for my education in those days. Um, and was working with an osteopath that really inspired me to go on to osteopathic medical school. So I went to Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine, really enjoyed my time there, but knew I was going to work in EMS or ER world somehow and applied for my residency at UC Davis where I could be close enough for my passion of skiing and be involved with ski patrol as well as learning good trauma care and be in an academic environment. Uh, I think that time at UC Davis and as I was working with Ski Patrol sort of inspired me to learn more about how I can help the patrollers uh, and more in the EMS world and eventually went to a sports medicine fellowship at O'Connor Hospital in San Jose where they had one ER and one primary care sports medicine fellow. And that's sort of how my career was shaped from there. Eventually got to a point where I was working with Kaiser and trying to find a, a balance of career in the ER world and fun working with non-for-profit sporting events and sports medicine coverage. Hmm. So you're so you're now working in kind of both of those worlds, doing emergency medicine as well as uh, non-profit sporting events. Correct. Correct. 
Um, yeah, and, and always wanted to do time volunteering for ski patrol, but also found ways to work again. Yeah, nonprofits, marathons, triathlons, um, ways to help volunteer and also find teaching. I definitely love teaching and working with residents. So my, my current my current job right now at Kaiser is working in the emergency department, but I'm the rotation director for emergency medicine with a family medicine residency program and enjoy doing the sporting events and teaching for that on the side. So tell me about your family. Um, well, there's no time for kind of uh, dating when you're going through residency and fellowship, but I eventually uh, got onto a, a dating site to meet somebody, wanted to settle down, and my I found my husband through a sports-specific dating site because I wanted to find somebody who would snowboard and surf, and that narrowed down to five people in Northern California, and he's the first one I met, and we hit it off instantly and fell in love um, and got married while I had a locums job in Hawaii. Wow. So enjoying our time in Hawaii, uh, that was that was also kind of an academic job with possibly a sports clinic opening in the future. And we were enjoying our time and enjoying the job and trying to figure where we would settle down when the market crashed in 28, 2008, and he lost his job in the mortgage business. And I was pregnant with our first child and we had to make a decision about where to work and how we would raise kids. And he decided he would stay home and raised the kids while I was the breadwinner. And that meant returning to Sonoma County where he had a house. And I knew people from UC Davis alumni through with Kaiser and worked to find a, the full-time job that I'm in now. And we eventually had, we had, we have a son who is now about to be eight and a daughter who's about to turn 12. Oh, wow. And has he gone back to the mortgage business or pretty much just staying home and taking care of the kids. He has not. Um, when you go through a wildfire and a crisis like that, it also influences your ability to return back to work. Um, I, I, I think part of this conversation and getting through things ends up, um, I, I picked a husband and partner that was very supportive through, through crisis and actually has had the time to be able to help us get through the rebuilding process of this wildfire we will talk about. So no, he has not returned to work, but I'm grateful for the time it takes to be present and mindful in raising children through crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, so along those lines, why don't you go ahead and tell me about the fall of 2017? Okay, well, yeah, Sonoma County will be forever affected by the fall of 2017. Um, I think we had uh, a combination of weather that with heavy heavy years of drought followed by a couple years of heavy rainfall that really influenced what the vegetation was um, just a perfect setup for fire to begin with but on in october october 8th of 2017 it was a very hot very windy day and my husband being the outdoors guy that he is was coming back from a mountain biking trip and so had some mountain biking gear um, in his car and a bag to, to sleep or camp. And we just did the usual exchange <laughs> where he came home, he started taking care of the kids and I left to go to work, leaving in my scrubs and shoes, not realizing that was kind of one of the, the, the last items I might be able to gather that day and, and went off to work. Um, our, our ER became different in the evening already just listening to the radio chatter of how many fires were going on, small structure fires throughout the county by the evening, sometime after nine o'clock. And soon enough, there was fire within all of our multiple places in the county and there was smoke in the hospital. We were starting to notice it could even affect us. People were were coughing and, and feeling the effects of the smoke and just a different level of anxiety within the emergency department. By 10 to 11, there were already people coming in that had been exposed to fires. And the, the couple different fire complexes that happened within the county were spreading quickly. And the fire was traveling up to a couple miles per hour. 
So, you know, as a usual ER physician and multiple ones of us were on, we were doing our usual duties of caring for people, but also listening to this radio chatter in the background and realizing that something was impending um, and concern and realizing it was also sort of headed the way towards the hospital. By, I think, midnight, I had been trying to call my husband who wasn't answering. And I really wanted him to be aware. And it started to alarm me more and more that I couldn't get through to him. We had some of our physician in chiefs, assistant physician in chiefs, start to come into the hospital because they were aware our hospital was in threat of fire danger at the time. And already contemplating the idea that we might have to open up the uh, hospital command center. By 1.15 in the morning, Josh Weil, who's a UC Davis alumni, ER physician, sitting next to me, came in for the night shift. His neighbor had called and was yelling, get out, get out, not realizing he was on duty. And he immediately, Josh, turned and called his wife. And all we could hear was screaming from Josh's 15-year-old daughter because they were driving through flames. And that screaming, I could hear from across the room. And I knew Josh's house was very close to my house. And I knew my husband wasn't answering. And I dropped everything. I, I still mentally made sure in my head that my patients were OK and transferring care to those that I needed to transfer, but ran to my car and left the hospital knowing I had to go up and get my husband and children out of the house. Um, it, you know, then, from then, it's, it's kind of a blur. It's amazing what the brain does during times of crisis. But there was, I know there was a police officer, a volunteer police officer that was blocking the path towards my house. And I must have flashed a badge, done something. But I told him, I will go through this checkpoint because I need to get my family out. They are not answering. So I drove through the roadblock <laughs> up a one-way path which I knew in my head I could get blocked in because the flames were coming. By this point, you could see it, you could smell it. The air was thick with smoke, there was poor visibility and the wind was so tremendous. So the wind ended up knocking down some trees and I got to the point where I realized I know why the police officer was blocking this. There was a tree that was down and Thank goodness I had an all-wheel drive Subaru. I'm always going to be grateful for my Subaru because I went over the downed tree hmm. and somehow managed to make it up to get to my house. And as I was driving about this point, my husband finally answered the phone. The neighbors, um, children, all like the teenagers, all went down one by one down our street and made sure to bang on everybody's door and wake them up. So my husband had a few minutes head start where he was woken up realized, oh my gosh, I need to get the kids and grab some things. And so he had just gotten them dressed and in the car when I was able to pull up. Hmm. So that panic of knowing at least they're awake, they're there, we're going to get out safely. Although what we saw when we got to our street, it just was an overwhelming glow of orange. And the visibility was impressive, but the sound was really profound because it sounded like a freight train coming. It was just such an intense roar coming towards you. And then there was explosions, just such frequent explosions. I think people who had canisters of propane, hmm. um, you know, different gas lines were exploding. And the fire had come from Calistoga up and over the hills and embers were traveling at about a um, they could go go downstream um, at a mile just because of the wind and so it was just so fast and quick the way it came so by about two o'clock i mean we'd had just a couple minutes to get the kids and i had to switch my brain from er doctor and now wife into mother and think about what do i need to help my children in this moment and what do I need to get from them? Because they were wide-eyed and panicked in the car. And I knew I needed to comfort them. But I also thought, what, what would they want? And I managed to grab you know, their favorite stuffed animals. And mm. it was almost Halloween. They're, 
their Harry Potter costumes, um, little items of comfort and grab those and get those in the car and the power shut off. Just like it needed to for so many locations around, it wasn't safe to have the power on, but having the lack of light to go into the house and grab the few things that we needed um, really made a difference on what people I think were able to get out of their homes. And unfortunately, uh, some fatalities happened because people weren't able to open their garage door the way they had expected and just didn't know how to escape in time. There was definitely some elderly around. And this fire unfortunately affected 42 lives. So I feel fortunate we got out, but I think about those who were left behind and just the implications of the power being out. Um, but my husband being practical and thinking about what do I need to grab? He, he said, hey, we might be camping for a couple of days. We're, we might need to uh, have some blankets and some sleeping bags. Who knows where we're gonna be? Let's grab some survival things. Just temporizing measures. He said, oh, we'll be back for the rest of our belongings later. Whereas I had thought of what are the few possessions we need to grab that are very important. Um, and we just unfortunately didn't have the time to grab many items. So I'm glad we grabbed what we could. Uh, we helped the last neighbor get out of their garage. At the same time, we saw a looter coming down and starting to look into open garage doors. And my husband chased him away before we uh, drove drove away. and. Mm -hmm. And luckily we had a street to go down a back route away from the flames because not all neighborhoods had that privilege. You really think about where you live and what your escape pattern is, what your evacuation route is. We had a chance to go down a hillside that didn't involve flames. And so it's probably 2 a.m. about this time that I'm helping my family escape. And interesting that the hospital command center is opening up at the same time and there's text messages and calls for those who can get cell service at this point um, about, you know, all hands on deck, please check in with the hospital because we're in disaster planning. We need to figure out how to take care of patients. And it's the start of thinking, how are we gonna help the patients that are in the hospital? And between two and 3 a.m., it was also the thought of the fire is coming in close to the hospital. And there, there's three hospitals in our town. And the first hospital, a Sutter facility, was already being evacuated during this time that I'm already getting my family out. Our hospital was being surrounded by flames. And at probably about 3 a.m. or so, the fire crews basically made some type of comment about how they were making a last stand for the hospital. And a lot of them were up on the roof, spraying down and trying to hold the fire from getting to the hospital from two last rows of mobile homes in an area called Journey's End. And there was a little dry creek bed. And their ability to hold the fire at that line preserved our hospital. But the higher ups and the incident command center had to decide we have to evacuate the hospital. So over 100 patients had to immediately be evacuated I took my family to come back to the hospital because after I knew my priority of my family being safe, I reverted back in ER mode of, I need to help, this is a disaster. I need to move on to the next <laughs> next thing to, to help the public and the greater good. Um, and we really had a discussion with our chief about let's work in shifts. I'd already done you know 12 hours of time. This was my time to go and sleep and be prepared to be refreshed and come back. And you, you focus on what the actual scheduling is of your doctors and make sure you've got shifts and people available to help. The night crew uh, helped manage to get the people to our other Kaiser hospital that was needed um, via interesting story, but private vehicles. Some people just yeah. took patients and drove them down to Kaiser San Rafael. And the other part of the evacuation plan involved city buses and three city buses came and got the rest of the patients going cross county to Marin County to get them to Kaiser San Rafael. Uh, and unfortunately, one of the buses was worried about leaving counties and took patients to a local evacuation shelter, the vet center. <laughs> but they were also patients who still had IV drips and medication needs and were then not at a hospital. 
So there was an immediate need to get physician and nursing staffing to those who were dropped off at the vet center, as well as then staff the hospital at Kaiser San Rafael that wasn't used to having over 100 patients brought to them. So that was happening in tandem with my husband and I trying to find a place to go. And when you have thousands and thousands of people in a small town all being evacuated at once, all losing homes, and there's only so many hotel rooms, you're starting to be desperate of trying to find where can you go for shelter. We had one family member in West County, an area called Sebastopol, where we were able to go and at three in the morning, knock on the door and say, hey, sorry, we need a place to sleep for the night. Can you at least let, you, let us sleep on the floor? So I got a couple hours of sleep and at least we had a safe spot before kind of waking up and figuring what's the next step. And these were friends in Sebastopol that you? Um, this is my, my husband has one brother mm -hmm. uh, close that was able to, to house us. So we don't have much family, but the fact that we could go to somebody was truly helpful. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so they sort of camp out there while you go, while you get some rest and you head back into, into the hospital. Or, or yeah, or as a physician, you first think, okay, what are my responsibilities? I had to wake up and log in and finish my charts from the night before. <laughs> so I made sure all my responsibilities were done. <laughs> I knew my kids got some sleep. When they were fed, they were okay emotionally. I switched back into, all right, how can I help in this disaster setting? And I don't know how it happened, um, but I'm really grateful to have been involved with the communication liaison for our hospital within a community, a network of all the medical centers and community offices of where should our doctors go where can we staff? How can we bring equipment? How many patients are in different evacuation centers? So we ended up forming an organization of different medical providers helping to care for at least maybe 20,000 evacuated people. A lot of seniors that had dementia that were at care facilities that were either abandoned or ev were evacuated and were wandering or had hmm. medical needs. There was so much asthma exacerbation. I mean, you had medical concerns as well as just care concerns for thousands of people who were otherwise without shelter. So the medical centers really put their heads together and figuring out the logistics. Um, so it was nice to be part of that kind of disaster relief work every day that let me feel like I was doing something for the greater good that allows you to help your your mental capacity during a time of crisis when you already know you're, you're suffering a loss. I basically got out with my scrubs mm -hmm. <laughs> and my kids stuffed animals. Um, but I, we lost everything we owned. We found out early that morning that we had lost the house. And the whole the whole neighborhood just realized, you know, probably by between three and four in the morning, hmm. the house was gone. The whole neighborhood was gone. Thousands of homes were gone. And was, was this in the Coffee Park neighborhood? Or? The Coffee Park neighborhood is just a little bit across from the hospital. Um, so the entire hillside of what's called Mark West Springs and then Fountain Grove was, was all taken out with fire. Uh, there was an incredible story of Safari West is an animal preserve where a man single-handedly saved his thousand of animals with using garden hoses and protecting his land. He saved every single animal there, but um, unfortunately lost his own home. So that was a valley that went down and our hillside that went down around the hospitals and then coffee park was where embers were sent that even crossed the 101 highway um and just a profound loss in coffee park just thousands and thousands of people affected with loss mm. and and those who died in the flames too all going on uh your family was at least safe in sebastopol so how how did you get through the next few days and weeks after you lost your home and the neighborhood and everything you owned? Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm grateful for my emergency training because I think as an ER doctor, you're used to going into codes and needing to maintain a sense of calm 
and leadership. And I think that natural instinct kind of kicked in at some point in time. I, I, I'd been in, in EMT during Columbine, even though I was not at a trauma center, but we still had to do a disaster plan. And I'd been part of a mass casualty incident of a rollover school bus concern in residency. Um, I'd also had a mass casualty incident when I was the doctor on for the Maverick surf competition and the wave took out many, many people. We had multiple victims at once. Those kind of experiences and thinking, all right, I first need to do A, then I need to do B, then I need to do C, I think really, really helped. So I could be a mom first, my kids, my husband was fine. Then I need to figure out housing. <laughs> that was a concern and a huge burden for so many people. And then I thought, how can I help my community? And just interesting, I literally thought of it in those terms. Um, our good friends who were expats in, in London had, be, had left behind a one bedroom house, a small home on five acres in the Redwoods out in a small town called Freestone. And that beautiful area of Redwood trees in this tiny home, but it was this gorgeous area of respite for me where the smoke couldn't reach that far. We could stay. They offered us the home for a couple months until we found another place to live. But I didn't realize how profound that was to get away from the smell of the smoke and the visual sight of the ashes. Because when you were in Santa Rosa, it was a new type of snow, that, that visible ash falling from the sky or the need to clean your car, get all the ashes off just to clear your windshield enough to drive. It was snowing ash and it's so profound to be there. So to be able to escape it really made a difference to get away from that sight that it looked like Armageddon every time you were in that orange dark sky or smelling it. So we escaped to this beautiful area where was my little respite with my family who was safe. I don't think I slept much. I definitely don't think I ate much. But man, I was mom and loving and supportive every day and tried to form, a, establish a, a type of normalcy for my kids, get them back to school when I could, give them a feel of the usual family unit, make sure they were fed well, make sure I still provided love and support for my husband who was just amazing. Uh, I mean, I don't think I could have gotten through it without him. He had his own ways of dealing with things. He'd he'd suffered through, he barely survived a, a bad car accident early in his life, lost his twin sister, his brother, and his mom. Hmm. So by this point, when he lost every item that he owned in a fire, he said, I've lost everything. What else can you throw at me, world? Okay, I'm ready to move on. I can do this. So his power and optimism combined with my, I think, ER training helped us get through this awful, horrible crisis to be there for our kids. And I know that how parents are in front of their children can have huge effects on how they will emotionally recover. So we tried to make it as normal as possible even create a little bit of fun for them. But yes, I didn't sleep. <laughs> I probably didn't eat, but man, I was a good mom and tried to be a good wife. And I started carving out a minimum of an hour per day to work on housing. And the competition between thousands and thousands of people trying to get what few rentals were available was really, really tough. So I had to throw a bunch of money to rental applications of people who might not even give me the time of day because they had a hundred other people hmm. applying for their one place that they could find. And my husband started working on the insurance. And however you set up your own personal insurance had huge finance, financial implications on how much you were going to get back, which allowed us or didn't allow people to get proper housing and proper rebuilding. So you have emotional recovery and then you have a financial recovery. And we already knew we were going to have to work on both of those in tandem. So we dedicated so much time per day to work on those projects. And it took me over an hour per day from October until December before I actually finally found somebody who would give me a chance at a, a rental home for my family. Uh, and that just felt, I mean, just months of trying to find a place to live was so hard. We, somebody gave us a chance at their, their rental home 
um, in a little community around an elementary school. And I was so grateful for it. And we got in on December 23rd. And man, my husband went out the night of December 23rd and got a Christmas tree. We had a Christmas tree and lights and presents under the trees that we could find as of December 24th. So my kids could feel like they were in a home for Christmas. Hmm. And where was the home? It's in another little community called Skyhawk, um, which is just across the valley in Santa Rosa. Ironically, as we've gone through every year of having wildfire crisis in this community, unfortunately, the glass fire in this last September of 2020 took out multiple homes in that community, and we almost lost the house that we rented. They almost lost their elementary school. Uh, yeah, part of this, as we go through every fall in the wildfire season, what we went through in 2018 with Camp Fire, 2019 the Kincaid Fire, and another hospital evacuation, and our hospital being down and the schools being out, and then we go through 2020 and the glass fire and watching the hills burn again is just, I'm sure for some people, just a true PTSD. Kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but because it's become such a theme throughout California, um, as as well as Colorado and Oregon. What what do you say to people that look at us? Because I live over the just over the Mayakama Mountains in Napa Valley, so I understand a little teensy bit of what you went through, but nothing to that extent. How do you respond to people that sort of look at us rebuilding in a fire zone and wondering what the heck we're doing? I wish we had better years of planning and really thinking about that wild land interface where we should be building. Um, I don't know that any of us are safe and that every year we're going to suffer some consequences and climate change is real. I think preparation is huge. I think wherever you are, you preparation starts at home and you need to prepare and you need to prepare your own to-go bag. You need to have an evacuation plan with your family. You need to know where you can meet up, how you can communicate in case cell phone communication is down. Um, you need to understand a lot about your insurance policies. You have to know every detail about what your insurance will cover and if you can financially get through a crisis like this. And I don't know that I would have built again other than being stuck in the financial hole where you have to rebuild based on your insurance policies but i also had kids in mourning who needed the stability feel of staying in their community there's a lot of people who feel like this is their home they need to stay where there are they are part of their recovery is in the rebuild or maintaining their jobs or maintaining being in their schools so I would never have thought about leaving because I needed to stay for my kids. If it weren't for my kids, I would, have, I would, I would leave the wildfire land just because mm -hmm. it's daunting every year. And did you discover any, I mean, it sounds like throughout this experience, you were able to tap into a lot of uh, skills you'd acquired uh, through your pathway, both as an, an EMT as well as an emergency medicine physician. Did you discover any new coping skills or stumble across any new interests during or after this time? Um, I think part of what helped me get through was the teaching role. I think if you're in academics in medicine, you love to teach, and I always love teaching. I just enjoy, I enjoyed working with the ski patrol in education. I enjoyed working with athletes or athletic trainers. Um, but we started a new, we were starting a new residency in family medicine that has taken years of planning. And I was just thrilled to be part of an academic role. Um, and the, the Kaiser graduate medical education really worked hard to change where their interviews were during wildfire season and get them interviews in, in San Francisco, for example, they adapted and I adapted. I found, hey, what can I do to make this incoming class of residents better prepared and my love for teaching and finding what was a new kind of niche in teaching them about disaster preparedness and planning I think was really helpful. I was in the middle of an American College of Emergency Physician teaching fellowship that was a year-long process 
two different times in, in Texas to go through how you're best serving residency programs. And I had a teaching focus. I was going to do a sports medicine um, endurance athlete <laughs> um, um, teaching module and just realized this is not what they need. There's a new need about disaster preparedness and just switching that focus and helping the residents understand what they were coming into. And then even saying there's a lot of learning that can be done and a lot of research that can be done with the people who are suffering, whether it's from wildfire smoke or thinking about the carcinogenic effects of us going through our belongings at our house, um, you know, and the exposures in the community to adverse childhood events with children um, and learning how these incoming residents could best serve this community. That was a great area to focus on and get some positivity. And so, so the teaching element was really helpful. And I, I love that the residency is thriving. The first class are about to graduate. They're wonderful people. But I also found that working with different aspects of the community that was part of the love and rebuilding here was just incredible. The more you involve yourself in those who are giving back to others, it can help you heal from stress. So I don't know that I took on any new joys or hobbies, but I started being more part of organizations that gave back. And my Sustainable Sports Foundation in Marin County, their first event, he said, okay, we're gonna give all of our money we raised to children in need in Santa Rosa, or the swim team we involved, they raised money for all the kids to just get them back into the pool. Um, thousands and thousands of dollars were raised. Our elementary school banded together and got donations so that people could have anything from bikes and scooters to towels and clothing um, and food. Just the more you involve yourself with good organizations and then start to give back to those organizations, I think the better you feel. So hmm. it was just a, a spin of positivity. Hmm. And I guess reeling back or zooming back even further um, than that, how is this experience, you know, losing your home and everything you owned back in 2017 and the events after that and the fires that have come each year since then, how has that changed your perspective on life in general, if, if at all? Um, I've had to learn how I can cope through crisis. And, you know, we study all those elements of you go through your anger and your bargaining and your, your grief. Um, I'd say I cycled through those pretty fast and learned I'm resilient. I had to be resilient. Uh, I definitely had little bits of grief, but I'm a better person now than I was before the fire because things are just things. It's not about things that you own. You can always replace things. People cannot be replaced. Um, I, I only cried a few times. And one of, I think, my hardest parts was that we had two hard drives and one hard drive had every bit of hmm. important information and all the photos from our history. And I said, hey, grab the hard drives as my husband went back in the dark to grab a few couple items and he grabbed the wrong one. Uh -huh. um, and unfortunately, I've lost, you know, I have no photos before 2012, including, unfortunately, I had, I have no baby photos, uh, you know, I've lost my children's baby photos. I don't have any any photos of my college graduation or medical school graduation or none of that history. But I was sitting out in that little forest home at West County and I, we had checked something on a computer hoping we'd had a backup, backed up file somewhere. And the moment I found out that backed up file was gone, it was the only time I just broke down and sobbed and my children actually saw me cry. And I said, I don't have baby photos of you. And my daughter, was in front of me and was so profound to say, mom, I'm right here. Why would you need any baby photos of me when if you're worried about me and needing to be with me, just give me a hug, I'm right here. Hmm. And that profound wisdom and that reality of, I don't need things from the past, I have what I need and I have the love and support of my children and my husband and that's all you need in life. And it was real important lesson that 
that, you know, I'm, I'm okay letting go of all of my past and not being able to, you know, see that elements of that from before. That doesn't matter. What I have is what I need. And my husband already had that viewpoint. It just took a little bit longer for me to realize that. But yes, things are things. If I had to go through it all again, it would be easier. I, I'm a better person because I recognize the importance of who I care about and love from the community. I think it's even made it easier to cope through COVID, to be honest, uh, <laughs> just because I just have such a profound appreciation for my health and my family. Yeah, and I guess that was my next question is how do you think it's changed your perspective on what's been such a difficult year for so many people in so many different ways uh, um, well it was it was insanely hard financially before it was ever thinking about health wise so uh, just struggling through what I was given from insurance and as the breadwinner and thinking how to recover financially through this uh, was astronomical for me. So my thought of, I will never be able to retire. I have to, I, I'm, I'm gonna have to work so hard to recover because I'm hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt from this, of not getting the money back from my insurance was happening just about the time that we were finally gonna get back into our home in debt and then COVID happened. And yet getting into the house and being in the pandemic and being right there with my family and again, realizing what's important and it wasn't about things and it's about your life and your health. Um, so there was something very sweet about being in the community. We've been through so much before. Uh, people were already suffering from the glass fire as well as the pandemic. Uh, it just allowed you to focus on what's important. And, and did you eventually get enough money from the insurance company to be able to, to rebuild adequately or did it has it truly kept you in the hole way further than you ever thought it would have? We will now be even, but it took about three years of fight and the hours and hours spent per week was just astronomical. I mean, at least one hour per week with an insurance meeting, one hour per week working with the builder, one hour per week working with the community um, neighborhood rebuilding organization was profound, but we needed legal support. When you call an insurance agent and, and get insurance for your house, if they get you through to somebody on a 1-800 number in another state, they don't realize how much it costs to rebuild in California. Mm -hmm. So if you're put through the national amount of $120 per square foot to rebuild and the actual cost to rebuild is $400 per square foot or you know I was we were not given money back for our belongings until we were to submit an itemized inventory of every sock you owned every Tylenol bottle every you know your chair your worth of your belongings your clothing we had to do a detailed inventory of when we bought things and how much we thought they were worth and they wouldn't give us money until we submitted that and the pain of going through that and the time of going through that again i'm so grateful my husband was at home or i was able to be home a lot to help work on this it it was painstaking and took years oh, that's amazing so it literally took years to come up with the list or once you had the list fighting with the insurance company? Fighting with get, the insurance uh -huh. company. It mm. took a, it, over a year before we hired a public adjuster and worked through it with him. Um, and it took a couple years before we got all the money back from the inventory despite the pressure from the California Insurance Commission to just give to the fire victims back based on percentages of their inventory that was owed to them. I will truly thank Kaiser Permanente because your work and your home environment can really make a difference. But my employer, Kaiser, with 77 physicians who all lost homes, you know, entire departments were wiped out from homes and maybe staying up to a couple hours away and three, 300 total employees had losses. They just helped us immensely. I mean, they provided us cash to help buy things back quickly, but they provided us weekly and eventually monthly meetings for helping to figure out our taxes and helping to figure out, do we need a public adjuster, especially linking us up with a nonprofit group called UP Help 
that's kind of the roadmap to recovery for wildfire loss and recovery. And that nonprofit helped guide you through what your next steps are. So I need to thank them and, and truly thank Kaiser for helping to pull all their employees together and say, what do you need from us? How can we get you together so you can all share stories, find what's working well to move on emotionally and then we know you'll also be better employees and then we were better more empathetic physicians to be honest because our community was going through it with us mm -hmm. hmm. and that 77 physicians that was just at kaiser um, that was just at kaiser over 200 physicians within our small community lost their homes hmm. and and you were saying earlier that thousands of people lost their homes in the greater area. Yes, there was over 5,000 structures lost just from that fire. And then we had the following year with the Kincaid fire. And then again, this last year, the glass fire. So there's so many people who've lost and so many layers of rebuilding. You can probably hear there's a cement mixer working in the background that's just building a house that I can see right in front of me right now. And I can look over the valley and I can see where there is mm -hmm. half the hillside has beautiful greenery and half the hillside is just charred and the trees are lost and I can see the white ashes left from from houses that were burnt just this last year, let alone layers going back to 2017. And how close did the fires in 2020, the glass fire, how close did that come to your new home? It came to the point where I could see it just across the way. Um, it was eerie that I was driving up the hill and saw the glow just like I did with the original night. And it was almost to the point of being able to hear the explosions again. We were on the, just the border of the evacuations. I'm really good at loading my car now. I can load my car instantly with all the belongings that I need of those few things that really matter. Um, and I think I have packed and unpacked probably five times in the last year and a half. And my kids are immediately resilient. They have their to-go bag. They know what to do. It's amazing. Um, skill sets you never knew you'd have when you got to your <laughs> stage in life, being able to pack a car in seconds. Um, well, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I know you have other things you need to do today. What would you say maybe is your greatest, and you may have already related this to me, but what would you say is the biggest thing you've learned from this whole experience of the 2017 fire? I, I think people can make choices in this life on how they deal with things. Um, my choice is to focus on the positivity of this community. And when I really look back at what was given to me, um, the people who came forward to help whether it's a, somebody, a, a friend of a friend started sewing us towels, another friend, friend's mom started giving us holiday decorations just because they knew it would give some normalcy to our kid. For the, for the next year's worth of holidays they gave us, um, I had a box arrive from a family in Reading and they included just some small items, but they said, they said in their, their little letter to us, they said, we've included some markers and papers. You can pass on your creativity, encouraging words and love notes to others. And they said, please pass on the beauty, kindness and love because they're the only things we create that water cannot drown and fire cannot burn. And I took that, that bit of love and friendship and those kind of community things to pass along. There was so much beauty that came out of so much disaster and grief. So take with you the positives and appreciate the small things in life. And things are just things. It's about more. It's about the people. I have a new sense of family and community out of this. Hmm. It's a beautiful place to live just because of the people who are here. Any final thoughts for our listeners, Cheryl? I'm ready to help the next uh, wave of people who are going to have a loss. I would love to, you know, adopt a next family who's going to go through fire. Um, please have yourself prepared. Talk it over with your family about what your evacuation plans are. Disaster preparedness is very, very important, especially in California. 
And I'm just, I'm grateful for what I have been through. I'm a better person because of it. Thank you for bringing awareness about this. Thank you for what you're doing to show people who've gone through different layers of crises. Well, thanks, Cheryl. I've really enjoyed talking with you today and wish you and your family well. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this, the fifth in the series on Surviving Crisis podcasts. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll enjoy number six, which should be uploaded in the next one to two weeks. Coming into this podcast, you heard a portion of a song called Calvary, which is performed by Mandolin Orange, and exiting, you're hearing Tidal Wave by Old Sea Brigade. I hope you have a great day. This has been Paul Aronowitz in Sacramento, California. Thanks for listening. Face the day.